Let's pray once again as we uh, open the word of the Lord together. Father, we do recognize that there is truly none but Jesus who has shown us love the way you have. Who saw us in our helpless position, helpless condition. And in your sovereignty, you chose us. So, Lord, help us as we walk in faith, as we walk in that newness of life. To recognize that it is by your grace that we get to do that. And Father, as we consider your word together this morning, I pray that you would help us to understand you. Understand the mystery of how you work. How you worked in the first century and how you're continuing to work today. Speak, we pray, by your spirit and by your word. For we, your people, are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, it's, it's nothing new that reporters and newscasters like to use hyperbole to raise attention. I mean, if you, if you are familiar with newspaper things, there's an old adage that says, if it bleeds, it leads. So if there's something big, they're going to put it on the headline and make sure you know, you know and so that you'll buy their newspaper or you'll tune in to their, to their show. But one of the things that we can see is that there have been dozens of times in the last three centuries. Now get this, three centuries, dozens of times when reporters, when uh, journalists have used the phrase trial of the century. How can there be dozens among three centuries? But needless to say, they like their hyperboles. There are trials for treason, trials for murder, trials even over custody, trials for beatings. All that have been categorized as trials of the century. But I wonder in some ways is if there is a trial that is of eternal importance, could we say there's a trial of the millennium, a trial of eternity? And I guess I would contend, yes, that in fact the trial has already happened and in many ways it's continuing to happen today. And that is the trial of the nature and identity of Jesus And in some ways, we could look at the book of John, and we have been looking at it as as John's argument in favor and defense of the title that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And as we continue to look through the book of John, we're examining his arguments in favor of this verdict about the nature and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So today we're coming to John chapter 5. And if you have your copy of God's Word, let me encourage you to open there so you can have it there. There will be some things on the screen. But beginning today, we're sort of getting a preliminary trial, almost a preliminary hearing. As, as between this week, next week, and the week after, we, we look at John chapter 5. Today, we're going to get to see the incident and the indictment that is before us, that the, the accusation that is waged against Jesus. Next week, Pastor Ermal is going to come and, and consider Jesus' defense as he talks to the Pharisees, as he responds to these accusations. And then in two weeks, I'm going to finish up by talking about the witness testimony 
as we prepare for Easter. But we'll, we'll wrap up this little sort of mini trial or mini hearing. And so if you want to take notes, if you want to fill out the outline, there's some blanks that you can uh, do that with. But, but let's begin where every good trial begins. And that is with the incident, with, with the thing that happened. And that thing that happened for Jesus was healing on a Sabbath, healing on a Sabbath day. Then you, you heard Charlotte read about that in, encounter. So since she read it, we're not going to go back through and look real closely at each text. But I, I want to just paint the scene for us. Let, let's kind of understand the, the context of what's happening here. If you remember, Jesus had been up north in Galilee. And John writes that he, had to, he went up to Jerusalem because he comes south, but Jerusalem's a higher elevation. So the biblical writers always referred to Jerusalem as being up. But he came to Jerusalem for a festival, for a feast. John doesn't tell us in this instance what feast it was that he came to celebrate. But we find that Jesus is there at the pool of Bethsaida near the sheep gate in Jerusalem. And scripture tells us that this sheep gate, this pool often rumbled with water. And so the infirm, the paralytic, those who needed healing would kind of get themselves into the water in hopes of being healed in those waters. And so around this pool, typically there were lots of invalids, lots of paralytics, people who were, had various physical ailments for which they wanted healing. We also learn in the scene that this day is not just any day, but it's the Sabbath. This is happening on a Saturday, which for Jewish people is a day of rest. And then we see, we, we understand that there's this man, one of the many who's around the pool. This man was at least 38 years old because the scripture tells us he'd been infirmed or a paralytic for 38 years. He had been in this condition, unlikely, likely un, uh, unable to get himself there on his own unless he was dragging himself on his, on his hands. Or unless a friend would carry him. So he was completely helpless. And, you know, so often I think we, we think about paralyzed people today as people being in wheelchairs. Well, when did wheelchairs get invented? I don't know. I didn't look that up. But this man was likely in a condition where he was completely helpless. Something else to consider is that some have noted that people with paralysis deal with so much more than just a lack of mobility. For some, it's the, the, the lack of ability to control their internal organs, their bladder and bowel issues. And so that could be a sense of embarrassment. Here's this man who may have an aroma that came with him because he couldn't control when his body decided it was time to go to the bathroom. He was likely resigned to begging looking out for the generosity of others. Some have suggested that people, maybe not necessarily this man, but some people made a good living begging. And so his life was entirely wrapped up in this, in his in, inability, in his disability, if you will. But then in this scene, so we have the, the, the context, we have the man, and then we have this interaction with Jesus. And it appears that there were several people around the pool, and yet Jesus specifically chose this man. He specifically picked this guy for some reason as being the guy who was going to get healed that day. And I think it's important. John doesn't tell us much about the guy's character. We get some clues. 
But it wasn't that the man was overly righteous or holy. He wasn't deserving of God's, of Jesus' grace, of his mercy. Jesus just chose to show him mercy. Which really is something Jesus is continuing to do today. He is choosing us one by one. Drawing us into a relationship with him. Not because we deserve it, but because he chooses to show his love for us in that way. But think about this. He, he, he then in verse six, the, John tells us that Jesus went to the man and said, hey, do you want to be healed? And to which the man replied with an excuse. He didn't say yes. He just said, I don't have anybody to get me in the water when it's stirred. And so Jesus said simply, get up, take up your bed and walk. And so we have this, this tension that's beginning to take place. John gives us this brief aside at that point to remind us, to tell us that this is happening on a Sabbath day. Well, for any good Jewish person reading this would understand, oh, you don't do that. You don't pick up your mat on a Sabbath day. And Jesus and the man at this point, they part ways, but the man is seen by the religious leaders. And I think it's quite possible they may have recognized this man. I mean, after all, beggars would often find their way to the opening of the to the doors of the temple in order to ask for money. So the religious leaders would likely have seen him. And in the very least, the nature of his attire and his aroma would give them some clue as to his status. And yet the leaders are not impressed by the healing that this man experienced. They're instead offended by the fact that he is breaking one of their rules. John chapter 5 verse 10 says this. It says, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And they kind of go back and forth and the leaders want to know who healed him. They want to find out who told you to pick up your bed and walk. But the man didn't know. And so the gist of this encounter is that the man who was is that the man who is healed is accused of lawbreaking by leaders. And they want to know who gave him permission. Who who told you it was OK to take up your bed and walk? Which brings us to the next part of the trial, and that is the indictment breaking the Sabbath. So really, there's two counts here. There's breaking the Sabbath. And we'll find out in a few moments that there's e- calling himself equal with God. There's equality with God or or what we might also refer to as blasphemy. So sometime later, John doesn't tell us it might be the same day. It might be a little later, a couple days later, Jesus and this man meet and John 5, 14 to 15 says afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told Jesus that it told the Jews, rather, that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, look at what happens here. Rather than showing gratitude to Jesus, I mean, imagine this. You've not ever been able to use your legs, or at least not in recent memory. And the man happens to be walking around and sees Jesus, and instead of saying thank you, turns tail and runs to the Jews and says, Hey, I know the man who healed me. His name is Jesus. John gives us a brief summary of this in John five sixteen. 
He says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, healing on the Sabbath. And their initial claim was that Jesus' healing work and the fact that he urged this man to pick up his bed and walk broke Sabbath laws, which really begins to beg the question, what is the Sabbath and how was Jesus breaking these rules? How was Jesus breaking the rules that were established for the Sabbath? In case you're unfamiliar with how the Old Testament works, the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments. It was initiated by God as a day of rest. God modeled the, the Sabbath rest in creation. It says he, he created the world in six, six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And so God wanted that pattern. In fact, our whole weeks are lined out, not because of lunar alignments, not because of solar alignments, but because of days of the week. And God ordained that there be seven days, and one of them would be a day of rest. But in the Ten Commandments, God instructed his people this way. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 to 11. He says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. And on it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that it is in, in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So this then begins to beg the question, what is work? If we're not supposed to work on this one day of the week, well, what is work? What gets qualified as work? And according to the mission of the Jewish set of rules and guidelines in interpreting the law, interpreting what God wrote down here, Jewish leaders clearly believed that picking up your mat and carrying it was a means of work. I understand that even walking more than so many steps, so much for your Fitbit streak, walking more than so many steps on a Sabbath would be considered work as well. In all, there were about 39 different categories that the Jewish religious leaders came up with to help the Jewish people not work on the Sabbath day. They, and I, I believe they did it as a means of really trying to help them live out holy lives. All of these 39 activities were prohibited. Picking up the mat was one of them. Based on what we see here, it looks like healing is another one. But beyond that, Jesus received a second indictment. So his first indictment is that he healed on the Sabbath. The second indictment was that he called himself equal with God. John 5, 17 to 18 says, But Jesus answered them, My father is working, and I, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this simple act of kindness and consideration gets turned into an indictment that included breaking one of the Ten Commandments and even blasphemy. And next week, Ermal is going to pick up the narrative in Jesus' defense, looking at how Jesus responds to these accusations. But before we conclude our time together, I think it's important for us to really think through some contemporary considerations 
Because I think it's important for us to see and understand what is this saying about Jesus? But also, where do we fit into this encounter? And I think there's a a few things. Because if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of of this man or the, the shoes of the Jewish leaders, we might find ourselves in there somewhere. So one of the things I think that we need to pay attention to is that when left to our own devices, we corrupt God's good gifts. And there's a handful of ways I think that this happens. I mean, let's think about the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath was meant to be a refreshing day for worship, a day to rest, a day to be renewed, a day to enjoy God and his good gifts. And yet it seems like these religious leaders had gotten so specific about what it meant to truly fulfill, to truly live in obedience to the Sabbath, that they, their, their, their standards and their rules became onerous on the people. Jesus' act of compassion and kindness paled in comparison to how he broke their laws. David Stern, who is who wrote the Jewish New Testament commentary notes. uh, He he says, note, however, that Judeans ignored that the note, however, that the Judeans ignored the miraculous healing and concerned themselves only with the infringement of their version of the law. They could not see that the formerly crippled man's ability to carry his mat attested to God's glory. And so I wonder how often do you and I corrupt God's good gifts? In some ways, we judge ourselves by our intentions and yet judge other people by their actions. When in the end, we should just let Jesus do all the judging. We might even place onerous burdens onto some people coming to faith. Oh, well, you can't come to faith if you do X, Y, or Z. You can't come to faith if you're still practicing this. I was watching a video this week of uh, a pastor of a big church in Texas, and it was a video from years and years ago. But he was talking about how there were certain people engaging in what we might call questionable activities outside of church on Sunday morning. And I'm not, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to fill in the blanks of what those questionable activities are. But being good Baptists, we can probably use our imagination to figure out what they might be. But he, he, he got indignant and he said, these guys who are doing those things now, which really is less. Two weeks ago, they were shooting up cocaine, up cocaine and were smoking weed. And I'm grateful that they've given up that for something less because they've come to faith in Christ. And God is working in their lives, transforming them, drawing them. And see, I think when we look at this good gift that God gave to this man, that, that, that I mentioned this before and we even sang about it, is that this man didn't deserve the grace of Jesus Christ. He didn't deserve to be healed. But ultimately, we have to recognize that none of us deserve the salvation that we get from Jesus Christ. We didn't do anything to earn it. Scripture tells us no one is righteous, not even one. And yet sometimes we hold up our faith and our salvation and our, the grace we've received from God 
He's making us think, oh, we're better than other people when we're just sinners saved by grace. But I think there's another thing that we kind of get to see here is that not only do we mess up things like the Sabbath, we mess up God's good gifts, but when we look at the way that this man threw Jesus under the bus, I mean, think about this. The man's life was changed and his first reaction is to take the, the, the target off of his back and put it on Jesus' back. Oh, no, no, no. I, I wouldn't have broken the law if it weren't for this guy who healed me. Go get him. He wanted to get the attention off, his, off himself. But how often do we see life in Christ as a burden rather than a blessing? We look at the freedoms that we might see in other people and think, oh, man, it would be better if I wasn't a believer because then I could do that with a clear conscience. And yet we fail to see the grace and the goodness of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And instead of gratitude for all that he has done, our redemption, our eternal life, purpose that he has granted us, we live in gloom of thinking that we can't have any fun or enjoyment as if, All of those things that we might declare as fun are really fun. But there's another thing that we do, and this is kind of lessened in recent years, and that is that we equate sickness with sin. And we sometimes think that, well, people must be in if people who are sick must be living in some sort of sin. And there are times when the two relate. And as we'll see in a few weeks, when we study John chapter nine, you know, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus disciples come to him and they say, Master, did this man sin or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus clearly tells him this man didn't sin nor his parents, but this man is blind so that God will be glorified. And I think we have to recognize that God sometimes uses sickness and he uses struggle as a means of displaying his glory in our lives. In fact, even the Apostle Paul beautifully wrote that God's power is made perfect in our own weakness. But I think that there's something else at play here. You see, not only can we see ways that we corrupt God's good gifts, but we can observe that Jesus seemed to be instituting a proper perspective on work and ministry. You know, returning to this idea of a Sabbath, it seems that Sabbath wasn't intended to be a day to do nothing. But rather a day to not work. Many commentators have suggested that this work would refer to a means of livelihood. If I'm working on this day of rest as a means of providing for my needs. If you think about it, if you remember in the Exodus, when God provided manna for the Israelites, he provided an extra measure of manna on the day before the Sabbath so they could gather once, providing for their means and have that. They would save up for, in this case, a day. All the other days, they could only eat the, the, what was good for that day. There is some thought that you know, Jesus went into a carpenter trade like his stepdad. We don't know exactly how Jesus made his livelihood outside of what he learned from his dad. But when his public ministry began to take off, his act 
of healing this man was an act of compassion. It wasn't part of his work. Even the man's act of carrying the mat was not considered a means in Jesus, I think in Jesus' eyes, of gainful employment. He was just going from one place to another in the new life, in the healing that God had given him. So I guess the question becomes, are we honoring God on our days off? Are we blessing others? Or are we simply pleasing ourselves? But there's one other contemporary consideration in this encounter, and that is that Jesus seemed to poke the religious bear. You see, Jesus responded to the Pharisees in, in verse 17. He said, my father is working until now, and I am working. And it's almost like, you know, he could have taken a different approach. He could have referred to things differently, but he specifically chose to say those words for a reason. I think he's trying to drive home the point that he is no ordinary man. He's not a magician. He's not a miracle worker. He is the son of God. And this is ultimately the issue that each of us need to address, we need to be able to answer that question, who is Jesus? C.S. Lewis beautifully wrote in, in his book, Mere Christianity, and this is a little bit of a longer text, and he's, he's a very, if you've never read C.S. Lewis, he's, he's very thoughtful and deep, which means it's hard to understand what he's saying, but listen closely, and the words will be up there so you can read his words as well. But Lewis writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. Make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall on his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. And I think he drove that home to the people in, in Jerusalem that day, to those religious leaders, poking the bear, saying, look, I am the son of God. Jesus brought his identity to the forefront and he challenged the religious leaders to decide if he was just another teacher or if he was something more. And I think he's forcing us to do the same. So as we close, let me just reflect on a couple of questions. What does this encounter reveal about Jesus? What does this hearing or this trial reveal about Jesus? I, I think, first of all, it re reveals things about his deity. Jesus tells, his, tells these religious leaders, basically, I am the son of God. I am God in the flesh. What are you going to do about that? 
I mean, who but God could bring healing the way he did to this man who'd been infirmed for so many years? But it also tells us about Jesus' compassion. I mean, here's a guy who specifically chose a man. Now, I believe Jesus had some insight and knowledge into things. And I think he probably knew that this man was not going to respond with a great deal of gratitude. And yet he chose this guy anyways. And in our judgment, we might think, oh man, this guy didn't deserve to be healed. Look at how he's treating Jesus. And yet Jesus in his compassion and in his sovereignty chose this man. But I think also Jesus demonstrated intentionality. He knew that this would result in certain things. And so he specifically chose this encounter, this man at this time to heal. But another question I think we need to ask is what does this encounter reveal about us? So often we come to scripture with suspicion. So often we come to encounters with Jesus and think, really? We look at the things that he says and question. But I think it also reveals a bit of our own corruption. We look at God's good things and decide how we can make the most of it for us. Think about those Sabbath laws, those Sabbath rules. There's also a bit of defensiveness. This man failed to stand up for Jesus to be able to say, hey, Jesus, thank you for doing this. Instead, he pointed to him and said, hey, go talk to him. I didn't mean to break the Sabbath. But how often do we get defensive about our own righteousness or self-righteousness? But there's one last question, and that is this. How should we respond? See, think about this. Being a beggar for so long, the man had likely built up a lifestyle around begging. That was his life. That was where he was comfortable. And this healing would have changed everything for him. His daily activity was now completely different. The mobility he had required that he couldn't just sit and beg the way he used to. He didn't have to go to the pool of Bethesda in hopes of being healed. That was now out of his calendar for all time. His entire life was reoriented because of his encounter with Jesus Christ. And so the question I think we need to ask is, are we willing to reorient our lives around Jesus? Are we willing to change how we think, how we act because of what Jesus has done for us? Just as this man did. I've not been reading a lot of C.S. Lewis lately, but I have another quote from him because I think he he appropriately talked about this. But Lewis famously again said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine What is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea? We are far too easily pleased. And I bring that in there because imagine this guy, his life has now changed and yet he's pushing back at Jesus. Not showing the grace and gratitude that he could. But how often in our lives do we settle for what is here 
and now and fail to see the joy that is in a relationship with Jesus Christ for eternity. So like a good lawyer, the Apostle John has set up this entire gospel as a means of driving people toward belief in what we might consider the trial of eternity. And this encounter in John chapter 5 seems to be just one of many hearings as the trial ultimately leads each of us to a verdict. Are you willing to acknowledge who he is? Are you willing to trust who Jesus is? And we're going to be talking about that, obviously, as we work through the the book of John, but over the next few weeks as we prepare to celebrate Easter. And I want to encourage you, if you have questions about it, I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to open up scripture with you. I'd love to talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ. But there's also a book in the book nook, in the little area where we have books out there that talks about coming to a verdict about the empty tomb, about what Jesus Christ did. And I want to encourage you, if you have questions about Jesus, pick up that book and check it out and consider what Christ has done for you. Let me pray for us. God, we do thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the way that you healed this man, the way that you worked in his life, the way that you brought issues to the forefront, issues that we need to consider. And God, I pray that you'd forgive us when we get so satisfied with things here that we fail to bring you glory, that we fail to see all that you have called us into in this beautiful relationship with you. God, help us to walk humbly before you, gratefully before you, joyfully enjoying your many good blessings. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen.